Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey there, Fangirl Nation. You are listening to Fangirl Sports Network's Get My Job podcast on Blue Wire. I am your host, Tracy Sandler. And we have an incredible episode today as I am joined by senior entertainment reporter for ESPN's The Undefeated, Kelly Carter. As The Undefeated celebrates its fifth anniversary, Kelly reflects on her professional journey, including starting her career writing about topics of intersectionality and how it shaped her as a reporter, a female reporter, and a female reporter of color. She talks about the keys to building relationships with sources, whoever they may be, while also highlighting how her interviews changed in the wake of COVID-19 and the murder of George Floyd. This episode is really special, so subscribe, download, listen, and enjoy. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me today for Get My Job. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Really, really excited to have you, and you cover you a cross section of things, and we haven't necessarily had that on Get My Job. So, been so <laughs> excited to talk to you today about the undefeated and everything you've been doing. Uh, but I'm going to ask you to just start taking us through your professional journey that took you to where you are right now. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I always wanted to be a writer, and I didn't really know what that meant. You know, I mm-hmm. think initially when I was probably in fifth grade, um, when when teachers are asking what you want to be when you grow up, and you start mm-hmm. seeing career days, and the, what they're really doing, obviously, is identifying, you know, which subject matters you're excelling in and trying to slide into a space. Writing was the only thing that made sense to me because that was something that I'd been doing um, since I was a really little girl. I'm a child of an English professor, and my dad also is an academic too. So I think I probably was influenced by them. But my teacher at the time, you know, there isn't a vocation for fiction writer. And so she's like, why don't you be a journalist? And I'm like, tell me more, you know, and we got the newspaper every day. So that was that was something that I was familiar with like a tangible thing, mm-hmm. but I, I didn't spend any time as I'm sure most people don't thinking about what it took to actually produce that newspaper and, and who the people were at the top of the story, what those bylines were and what a byline was. And so I started investigating that and looking into that. And I said, sure. And I started working for uh, our, uh, we had a a fifth grade yearbook, I think that was like the closest we had to a newspaper. And then when I got to sixth grade, I was a film critic for our newspaper, which is funny because that literally is is the career that I have right now, you know, that I that I have a, an analytical voice in, in entertainment space. And it's pretty, you know, it's pretty boring as far as I was never the kid who ventured much past that. You know, I think Mm -hmm. by the time I got into high school, being a writer and being a reporter and being a journalist was always present. But I thought at one point I was really interested in live theater. We used to go to live theater all the time. My parents took me. I loved it. Um, I was obsessed. The first, you know, Broadway musical I ever saw was Annie and I, I could perform everyone's part. And so I thought maybe I should study theater in college. And my dad was like, So what does that pay and what kind of job are you (laughs) going to have with that? Because um, I don't know if what you want to do is move back home with your parents forever. So uh, let's talk about the practicality of what that career could mean. And so then I said, okay, well, then, you know, what? I'm going to study journalism because that's the thing that also has been consistent with me throughout the course Mm -hmm. of 
my very young life at that point. And my dad was like, okay, so let's talk about what your job's going to be as a journalist. And, you know, my mom was like, you know what? Let her go ahead and, and study journalism because she'll probably end up going to law school anyway. My mom, I didn't know this until that time, has started out as a journalism undergrad and then, oh. you know, switched over into English education and the rest was kind of history for her. And she had this vision of me, you know, wearing a three-piece navy blue suit and her buying me an attache, you know, the <laughs> second I got my my JD. And um, I used to jokingly say that I, I greatly disappointed my parents by not pursuing law school. Um, and the truth is that I just fell in love with chasing ambulances. I thought that I would be a news reporter for um, a, a good time of my collegiate career. I was doing a lot of internships covering news. But then I had a best friend who told me that I should really try and figure out how to develop a specialty because that's something that would probably set me apart from all the other newly minted graduates who would have, you know, all of this internship experience covering um, cops and, and crime, which is usually like an entry level position and certainly things that uh, newspapers felt comfortable letting, you know, these young teenagers or young adults mm-hmm. covering when they came into their newsrooms. And so I thought, what would my specialty be? Mm, I want to be a theater critic. That sounds interesting. Um, my first job out of college ended up being at the Detroit Free Press, which is my hometown newspaper. And at the time, they had this program for women and, um, Federal minorities, uh, essentially teaching teaching you how to develop a particular specialty in journalism that was underrepresented, okay. whether it was sports, business, um, copy editing, or in my case, arts, entertainment, criticism. And so I went there with the intention of doing that program for a year and then um, the idea is that you would go to another paper in the newspaper chain, and then you would be hired out of that program. I technically was only in that program for about three months when I was hired out mm-hmm. of it because I immediately, you know, kind of assessed what my impact could be there. And when I got there, I was the only woman on my desk. It was all men, and I was the youngest by far. And I was the only person of color. And so what I did was I used all three of those things to, um, because that's how I view the world anyway. I view it as a woman. I view Mm -hmm. it as, you know, a person of color. And I was viewing it at the time as a 22-year-old or 21-year-old turning 22. And none of my colleagues could relate to any of those experiences. And so I started thinking about who I wanted my audience to be and the types of stories that I wanted to tell. And I immediately started diving into the community, um, uh, the Detroit and Metro Detroit area, and, and figuring out stories that no one else was telling. And my bosses really loved it. And um, and I didn't realize it at the time because we weren't using words like um, intersectionality, you but- know, back in the late 90s. But that's really what I was doing. I was I was finding spaces where you wouldn't normally find women, for example, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it was female directors. And so I was talking to them about that experience of bringing your womanness to the set and being the boss, quite frankly, when everyone else underneath you is not a woman, you know, what that looks like and what that feels like and really tapping into those stories because I was looking at them differently than I think my, my male colleagues were same with people of color. You know, I, I remember one story I did, I found this um, this summer camp for 
Korean adoptees. They were Korean American wow. children who were adopted by non-Korean families. Most, most likely they were adopted by white parents. And so they would send their children to this camp every summer. And it was just a regular summer camp. The things that you do, you know, you make some mm-hmm. mores, you make friends, you learn how to braid hair. But what they also were doing is they had, you know, Tai Chi classes or Korean cooking. They were learning about culture in a way that um, perhaps their parents couldn't necessarily teach them. And um, and I, I don't even remember how I found that story, but I thought it was so interesting to go in and bed with these students who were really making a connection and learning about themselves and learning about um, the country that they were probably born in and, and most mm-hmm. likely they were born in and their parents brought them over to the country and, and what that experience was like because primarily they were growing up in predominantly white areas. And so I was really trying to just look for stories like that, mm-hmm. that I didn't think anyone else was telling. And I really wanted to just set myself apart. And so I did that for a number of years at, at the Free Press. And then I wanted a different challenge. You know, I, I moved on and I went to the Chicago Tribune, love Chicago, love the Tribune and the history of that paper, specifically as an arts and entertainment criticism paper. You know, obviously everyone knows Siskel and Ebert, you know, and I, I really wanted to learn um, what it was like to cover Hollywood because I had mm-hmm. my eye on Hollywood and I wanted yeah. to dive a little bit more into that. And I did. I wasn't there very long. I was only in Chicago for a year because USA Today called and said, hey, how would you like to cover Hollywood in Los Angeles and go on film sets and interview people? And, you know, obviously that was a dream job for me to really go and quite, you know, literally see how the sausage was made. I jumped at that and you know, came out to LA for the first time and and took that job. And it was such an eye-opening experience. I mean, I went from primarily talking to people on the phone and interviewing them because I was getting big name talent when I was in Detroit, but it would be phone interviews or if they were on tour coming into Detroit, which did happen, mm-hmm. I would interview them. I'd have my 40 minutes to interview that person or 20 minutes, whatever it was. Same in Chicago. If they came on tour in Chicago, I'd interview them. But in LA, it was, hey, why don't you meet me for lunch at my favorite haunt in West Hollywood? Or why don't you come on the set, you know, of, you know, of this latest Denzel Washington movie and just hang out for, you know, eight, 10 hours or whatever and see how that's done. Or, you know, you're going to events four and five nights a week where you're seeing Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie at the height of Brangelina, mm-hmm. you know, and, and really kind of ponying up to Brad Pitt in a way that I would have never been able to do if I lived in the Midwest still. And so that was completely eye-opening and just really changed the game quite literally for me. And I think that when I was laid off from USA Today, because I was laid off after Mm -hmm. about a year, um, we started seeing what was happening with newspapers a couple of years prior. And that's when we Mm -hmm. were seeing mass layoffs and downsizing and really the newspapers responding to the markets my time was finally called up and I didn't have a chance to think about what my life would look like elsewhere or what I wanted to do. I became an accidental freelancer. I was working for networks um, being, you know, like a talking head from Mm -hmm. E! True Hollywood stories to CNN, um, Fox News, even, you know, uh, whoever was calling TV guide channel, I was answering and saying, yes, I will, I will talk and you will pay me money. And this is great. And then I was also writing, um, you know, a bunch of magazine cover stories and primarily all of the stories that I actually started writing 
they were mm-hmm. all stories dealing with intersectionality, like okay. every last one of them. Um, and that really took me back to those early roots in Detroit. And I realized that that was a specialty that I had really started honing all those mm-hmm. years ago as a newly minted Michigan State University graduate and reporter. Mm-hmm. So it came kind of full circle for me. That's amazing. That is, that is fantastic. And so it's something since it's something that you did hone in on very early in career, your career, fast forwarding to today, has it kind of given you kind of a bit of a leg up? Because you've been doing this a very long time. Yeah, um, I think so. I think um, one thing that probably was advantageous to me, just as it was advantageous to me, I think, in Detroit, mm-hmm. um, being the lone woman and being the lone person of color is that experience was replicated in a lot of ways when I came uh-huh. out to LA. While there were other female reporters, most certainly covering Hollywood, I was probably the only black journalist, you know, doing okay. that and doing that for a mainstream outlet like USA Today. And because that happened, I stood out. You know, I was getting interviews yeah. that I don't think a lot of um, other young journalists of color were were getting because they weren't working for, you know, the big international newspaper. Right. Um, and so I was, I was invited into spaces that I probably normally would not be invited into. Like I remember one of my first Oscar seasons, Holly Berry wanted to throw this. Um, no, I'm sorry. It was Alfre Woodard wanted okay. to throw this dinner party for Taraji P. Henson and Viola Davis because they were both double, you know, nominated for um, supporting actor, supporting actress uh, awards that season. And it was Alfre Woodard, Holly Berry, Taraji P. Henson, Viola Davis, Loretta Devine, Angela Bassett. It was every kind of major um, Black female actor that was there at a dinner. And it was maybe 15 of them and myself. And the only reason I got invited had nothing to do with me being a Black woman myself, but everything to do with the fact that I worked for USA Today, you Mm -hmm. know, and um, because women like that and actors like that and people like that started seeing me in very intimate spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, it made me very familiar to them so that when I started freelancing and started working in other places, it wasn't, um, oh, hey, next you're about to sit down with Kelly Carter. She is reporting for fill in the blank outlet. It was, hey, Kelly, oh my God, remember when I saw you last Tuesday, we were at the bar and drinking and someone bought us shots and blah, blah, blah. It was a very familiar experience for them. So there was no need to do kind of the um, the quick intimacy you know, game that I think a lot mm-hmm. of reporters do to try and establish like a comfortable space. It was just, hey, let's talk because I'm comfortable talking to you because at this point, I've talked to you on and off the record. You've seen me take mm-hmm. shots. You've seen, you've met my mother. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you like, you probably have been invited to a friend of mine's house. Um, and I've seen you, you know, hang out at their barbecue and you kind of got a co-sign from that person. So I feel comfortable talking to you. And I think that's really been very keystone with the things I've been able to do right now in my career. So before we get into the undefeated, you bring up something that I think is really important, especially for young aspire, aspiring journalists in, in any field, and that mm-hmm. is relationship building mm-hmm. and how you were in a situation where there was there was a level of intimacy just already there. And how, you know, I don't know that that's something you can teach. It just might just be personality, but how did you navigate 
building relationships, creating familiarity, still remaining professional, but being comfortable. I mean, it's not an easy thing to do, especially if you're in a bar, at a dinner party, at a party, whatever it may be. It's not an easy thing to do. So kind of what tips might you have for navigating that? I mean, I think I think working in Hollywood in particular is really unique because you are interviewing the biggest and most famous people in the world, not in, you know, the city of Chicago, not in the great state of Michigan, you know, not in the Midwest, the world. And it can be really challenging, I think, for a lot of reporters to be comfortable in that space because it's difficult, especially with the way that we view celebrity right now, it's mm-hmm. difficult to separate um, that for a lot of people. But for me, I decided that it was important to humanize um, them and talk to them the same way I would talk to, you know, a representative of a municipality in Farmington Hills, Michigan, you know, mm-hmm. the same way that I would, the things that I, that I did when I was an intern covering, um, you know, the cops and crime or listening to the scanner and being sent out to write whatever story is a house fire. The same way I would talk to that firefighter on location is the same way that I would talk to Brad Pitt, quite frankly, mm-hmm. you know, or George Clooney. And I think that was important for me. And I think also it's important for the talent because what I found that that I was doing was I was disarming them. You know, Mm -hmm. I wasn't coming in like, Oh my God, my Lord, my liege, let me bow before you or let me treat you different because everyone else treats you differently. Mm -hmm. I was coming in and I still come in, you know, with, I always think of what's the, what's the first thing I can say to like throw them off guard in the best way possible and make them comfortable. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just always do that. And it just, it's worked for me. And I I tell younger reporters that all the time, like just talk to them the way that you would talk to a friend, be professional, of course, and be Mm -hmm. well-researched and know what you're talking about and all of those good things. I mean, I feel like those things should be a given, you know, as a reporter, Mm -hmm. but when it comes to specifically dealing with talent, you know, talk to them the same they, same way that you would talk to another source because that's what they are. They're sources. You know, they're mm-hmm. just very famous sources, but but they're sources and they're people and they have the same types of experiences that we have. I mean, yes, they have elevated platforms, but that doesn't mean that, you know, Chloe Zhao, who just became the second female director to win an Oscar, doesn't have the same struggles that, that you and I might have as women, you know, so... Mm-hmm understand that and start at that place, you know, find a place of familiarity, like a common ground and then build from there because that's only going to give you a different type of interview than everyone else is getting anyway. That's really good advice. And that's, it's really important. And I, I like what you said about how they're a source because yeah. I don't think you do. We do necessarily think of them that way, but yes, you're a hundred percent. They are a source. Mm-hmm. Um, so now undefeated. Uh, This is the fifth year anniversary is this week, which is exciting. Congratulations on that. Thank you. So as you look back on kind of what brought you to this point and your time with the undefeated, what would you say in the last five years has been maybe your biggest challenge? And what would you say you're the most proud of? Yeah, I think initially probably the biggest challenge is trying to convince Hollywood that I don't, um, I'm not a sports reporter all of a sudden. You know, I think that (laughs) they initially thought that that meant that I would want to talk about, you know, who's a better quarterback or, um, or, or something along those lines. And sometimes that still comes up, 
you know, quite frankly, every now and again. Um, but thankfully, I think at this point, they have an understanding that I didn't lose my mind and all of a sudden uh, convert to the world of sports that I'm just really still trying to tell the stories that I told before, but just for a different audience. And I think like the biggest reward is it's so strange because this last year and a half has been so many things um, for so many of us, you know, we've, we've lost family members and friends and, you know, the pandemic has been scary, but, uh, but also it has been a chance to have different conversations that I couldn't have possibly anticipated, you know, especially when we also factor in the activation that happened in the aftermath of George Floyd, mm-hmm. you know, it allowed me to talk to the same people that I've been talking to at this point for, you know, two plus decades, but have completely different conversations with them about, you know, um, we can talk about social activism. We can talk about, you know, giving back to communities, health disparities. We can still talk about their careers and all the things that they're doing. But I think a lot of, um, especially front-facing talent, were concerned initially that it would come across as tone deaf if all Mm -hmm. they were doing was talking about, you know, their fun new romantic comedy. I think escapism is one thing. And so I think some people recognize that escapism is so important, especially, you know, when you're stuck at home with your kids and or three generations in one household mm-hmm. trying to figure it out. Um, and if you have access to television or streaming, you know, if you've lost a job or whatever the case may be, um, they understand that that's an important role and they have an important job. But I think they also understood that their role also is to think about bartenders who no longer are able to draw a salary and trying to figure out ways to fundraise and make sure they're taken care of, or um, people who have lost jobs and need money for groceries or toilet paper essentials mm-hmm. that that we didn't know were necessarily things that we run out of, you know, in, um, in mass quantities. And, and then also to talk about health disparities when we look at what's happening with coronavirus. And so for me, that was a, that was a challenge, but it was a fun challenge. And, but it was probably the biggest and most rewarding thing I've been able to do because I love that I've allowed myself to further humanize these, these really big presences for, for an everyday audience. And, um, and I love that I've been able to do that with the undefeated. And can you talk a little bit about another act with Kelly Carter? Because if I'm not mistaken, that did start in the last year, correct? Yeah. So kind of the genesis of that. Yeah. I mean, that definitely started, you know, in at the beginning of the pandemic. So we always knew that we would do some type of digital show and some type of interview series, but we weren't quite sure what it would look like. We tested it out. We went to Mexico back in, I believe it was November, um, so a couple of months before the world, as we all knew, yeah. was about to change. Uh, we went to Mexico because they had an opportunity to sit down with Dwayne Johnson and Kevin Hart um, to interview them on camera. And we thought that that would be an interesting place to test out maybe kind of sort of what mm-hmm. uh, what a show might look like, um, not knowing that that would probably be one of the last in-person interviews uh, that we would do because I kind of went back to business as usual. You know, the beginning of the year is always championship season um, and all the things that I get to do from going to Super Bowls um, mm-hmm. and Sundance, Oscar season, you know, so it was a lot of travel for me um, covering those things. And then when we came back for Oscars week, we said, okay, let's sit down and do a couple of more of these in-person and interviews and see, again, kind of play around a little bit and see what a show might look like. And um, and then when we got, you know, 
first first heard the phrase stay at home orders, not knowing what that meant. And some people probably thought it meant, I think a lot of people thought it meant staying at home for a couple of weeks, you know, taking a break. Mm-hmm. Not wearing a bra, you know, like whatever. <laughs> like you just get to totally. be in your home for a little bit. And then when it looked that we would be doing this for a little bit longer than a two weeks, uh, you know, my bosses came to me specifically. My boss, um, you know, Raina Kelly was like, let's create something. Let's see mm-hmm. what a digital series would look like from home and like everybody else, you know, we, most everybody else, at least we took the zoom and um, which I had never used zoom before. I mean, I certainly use other people's version of like, um, like an, like a thing, but most of, you know, our meetings are in person. You go in a studio or you go into someone's boardroom, but all of a sudden we're doing zoom. And so I had to make a zoom account and we just said, you know, let's, make a list of people that we would love to talk to for this series. And when we showed the list to some of our bosses, they were like, wow, this is really ambitious. Mm-hmm. That's cute. See what you can do, whatever. And the truth is, um, once Don Cheadle said yes, mm-hmm. um, that kind of changed everything. I mean, Don is a really well-respected actor in this community, obviously. And it was such a fun interview. And, once I was able to tell people, hey, Don Cheadle is agreeing to do this digital series via Zoom, everyone else was like, all right, I'll say yes too. And then it just, you know, spiraled and spiraled and spiraled until, you know, Oprah was like, hey, I'm giving out $14 million to, you know, communities that have been disproportionately affected by COVID. Like, do you want to interview me? What? Sure. <laughs> Let's no, I'm busy, but thank right. you. Good luck with your project. Let's <laughs> do this. I was like, I don't I don't care if I have major surgery scheduled for the day you want to do this. I'll uh-huh. cancel it. Let's make that happen. Um, you know, and and then and everything else just imploded. I mean, it's at the point now where I do I don't have to spend as much time as I used to, you know, going out to people. It's a lot of people coming to me saying, "Hey, do you want to talk to my top tier?" client for for your series? Um, and the answer is, yes, I do. Uh, you know, and, and it's been like such a really great place because we really get to, like I said, you know, have conversations that I don't normally get to have um, with, uh, with the same talent. We were on the outside and the world felt a little bit more whimsical and a little lighter, you know, than it does, than it does right now. You know, we get to have some really good ripe conversations that we never normally would have had, you know, I don't think. And I think, um, you know, kind of going back to my own personal philosophy of, of being a journalist and being a journalist who covers entertainment, I get to really further humanize them because, you know, you're interviewing somebody and um, you hear their dog barking in the background. And it's As like- As we did earlier with my- Exactly. And, you, and, we, and we ignored it because yes. we, you know, it's like stars are just like us, you know, yeah. you, know? <laughs> you know, or they're wearing a hoodie, you know, uh, you know, at home, totally. they're comfortable, you know, you get to see what their living rooms or their kitchens look like. You get to see, you know, their kid, you know, turning a cartwheel in the background and them saying, mm-hmm. oh my God, hold on, let me, hey, you know, kid, go back to your room, do your homework. Like, it's just, it's been kind of cool because- We've been able to, for the most part, strip down, I think, all of the pomp and circumstance that normally comes with with being in Hollywood and just mm-hmm. 
talking and I think they enjoy it. I mean, now that the world is opening up a little bit more, you know, glam squads, uh, you know, are now in homes. And, and so that's changing a little bit. But I really kind of miss those those early days of the pandemic when no one could get their hair done and uh-huh. <laughs> no one had access to like, you know, a master, you know, makeup artist. And, mm-hmm. um, and you just or no one even had ring lights even, you know, people mm-hmm. were just like, can, you know, is the is the lamp in my living room good? Everyone had to be their own cinematographers. And it was just um, such a it was the great equalizer, I think, in a lot of in a lot of ways, you know, because um, we all found ourselves to be in the same position. None of us were able to, you know, go see our parents if they live states away or go mm-hmm. do the things that we normally might be doing. And um, and. Same with the world's most famous people. You know, they were in the yeah. same exact boat. And so, um, you know, as 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 crazy as that time was and as that time is, it's been a nice way to have a new entry point to have a conversation. And mm-hmm. I'm so I'm so grateful that um, that I've been able to have that experience doing doing this series. So as we move into the world opening back up again. Yeah. Do we bring some of that with us? I mean, does there do you think that we'll maintain a little bit more of kind of a relaxed atmosphere for lack of a better term or do we eventually go back to all the pomp and circumstance? It would be nice to think there's maybe a happy medium, but but what yeah. are you seeing? Um, I think it depends on who you ask, you know, like I, I interviewed Billy Porter from Pose um recently on the show and he's like the second the world opens back up, come find me and give me the biggest hug. Like I, I cannot wait to be at events again and to see people and hug people and have this experience. And then I interviewed Anthony Mackie um, very recently on the show. And he was like, everybody needs to stay six feet away from me <laughs> like for the rest of their lives. He's like, I'm going to be socially distancing <laughs> in perpetuity, like forever. You know, so I think I think it kind of depends. You know, we got our first taste of what of what the world might feel like. I was in the Oscar bubble. You know, I did. Okay. Um, I was a correspondent for for ABC News and GMA. And so, you know, we did test every day and, um, you know, and everyone was vaccinated and you know, and being a part of this experience. And then some people, you know, when, when talent was approaching for interviews, it was a definite, don't even think about coming five and a half feet away from me, like, you know, mm-hmm. six feet away. But then there were some people like Leslie Odom Jr. and his wife, they were like, oh my God, Kelly, like, it's <laughs> so nice. Let's be closer. You know, it's so nice to be around people. Right. Let's be here. You know, so I don't know. And then I see some of my contemporaries that have been now covering more red carpets that, you know, mm-hmm. that are happening now. And they're just like, oh my God, it's a red carpet. Like, you know, the MTV movie and, and TV awards were just recently. And I had a couple of friends that were there that were like, first red carpet back. Like it feels good to be like outside of my living room and like doing mm-hmm. something. And so I think we're going to kind of toe tip into what the world was like before. And um, I don't know though. I think that people also really love the convenience of being able to be wherever they were and to still do work like this via yes. Zoom. You know, like I've interviewed cast for like, um, you know, for press rele- press conferences, for example. And when we're in the green room talking, 
they're like, remember when we did that last film together and we all had to go to Budapest and then we had to go to Germany and then this place we're on the road. They're like, I'm so happy. They're like, I'm not wearing socks right now. I'm at home. I'm going to have a shot of bourbon on deck. You know, like whatever it was, they, they were just so happy not to be in the, in the rat race of, mm-hmm. of what they normally might be. And they were just, they loved being able to be there. I even interviewed someone. It was Jody, um, Jody Turner Smith, Jody Smith Turner. Um, and she and her husband, Joshua Jackson, they had really bad, she had really bad internet reception, but okay. I don't think she cared because she was in, uh, they were in Jamaica somewhere in this like, island mm-hmm. that probably had really bad reception, but you could see this beautiful view of the ocean behind them and they were on vacation, but she was working, you know? And I right. think they kind of loved being able to say, we can still do the things that we want to do in our personal lives. And then mm-hmm. when you need to zoom in for an interview, you can zoom in for an interview. And so I think that, you know, um, that also changed how we're going to do things moving forward. I think more people are accustomed to that and want to do it. And I'm not going to lie. I miss going into the studio. I think it's great. And I've, I've told everyone who will listen, like I'm ready to get back in the studio, but also I kind of love the idea of, I'm not wearing shoes right now, you know, and I'm right. not going to wear them until I have to physically walk outside, you know? So, so I kind of, I kind of like this new world order myself, you know? Yeah. I, I completely understand. I got up this morning. I was like, I'm going to work out later this afternoon. I'm going to wear workout clothes all day. It's totally right. fine. I don't have to be in an office. Like I don't, I think, it, and I think that's, I think that's totally, totally fair. Uh, you yes. brought up Leslie Odom Jr. So um, we have to take a moment and discuss our mutual love of Hamilton. Yes. Because I'm obsessed with it and I could do a one-woman show. Yes. Um, and it sounds like from what I've read, so could you. Uh, so yes. I just, I felt we needed to, to discuss oh my, Hamilton. Oh my God. So I was not one of the the lucky one percenters who got <laughs> tickets to Broadway to see it. The original cast. You were? Oh my God. I'm so jealous. <laughs> I'm so jealous. Um, so my experience, my first experience with Hamilton was seeing it. Um, on on the streaming service on Disney Plus, and I loved it. I'm obsessed. I love oh, every song. The soundtrack is so amazing, and I'm so happy that Broadway is announcing that they're coming back. And Hamilton's coming back to Broadway. It's gonna be one of the first tickets that I buy. Like I am so ready to see that on stage because um, he was so great in it. Um, Lin Manuel, David, everyone was excellent. Just a really, really great show. It's amazing. Davi Diggs, I think, is everybody was so incredible. So I say that, but I think he may be one of the most talented human beings like to ever watch. Like alive, right? <laughs> yeah. Like it's it's guns and ships. Like I just that might be the one song I can't do a woman would show up because at a certain point I'm like, I can't speak that fast. That's, you're amazing. He's amazing. Um, so I definitely want to talk about that. Um, before I let you go, and before we get to five fun facts, I just have a couple more things I want to talk to you about. And one of those is, you know, you spoke about very early on in your career, even in the internship, how you saw you were the only woman, you were the Mm -hmm. only woman of color. As you look at opportunities for females in the entertainment industry and the sports industry, although you're not a sports reporter, you're around that world. Sure. What is a misstep that you are seeing women make? And then the second part is how have you seen opportunities grow and how can we still improve? Oh, very good questions. Um, Thank you. I think um, I think a misstep, and this is, I mean, 
this is my opinion, <laughs> is that, you know, I, I think it's important just to come in as your authentic self. You know, I think, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times when you are the odd woman out, um, your you may make a choice to try and camouflage that. I know I've done that before, um, but I think it's important to be your most authentic self because that's honestly how you end up getting the best stories, you know, because mm-hmm. you're going to, mm-hmm. you, you truly look at the world differently than, you know, these men look at the world. So use mm-hmm. that womanness, you know, and I, and I, and when I say that, I, I, I want to be very clear because I'm certainly not, um, not saying what it might sound like. I'm saying use your experience as a woman because mm-hmm. you view the world differently. And, um, and you're, you know, even if you're not a mother, you're thinking about that person's mother or that person as a mother or, or, something maternal. You're thinking about, you know, the world just far differently than, um, than the lesser sex thinks about, uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) thinks about the world. So, so definitely don't, don't camouflage that, you know, come in and be Mm -hmm. your most authentic version of yourself. And I think that, you know, I love seeing more and more women enter the space, especially with sports reporting. Um, I think we need to see way more. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, so much room for so many more women, but we're seeing it in anchors like Elle Duncan. I think she's excellent. We're seeing uh-huh. it in um, in reporters and commentators like Jamel Hill and anchors like Carrie Champion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're seeing in behind the scenes people like Amina Hussein, who's a producer. She was a longtime producer of um, of the NBA show on ABC News or ABC News and ESPN, and she now works for Peloton, producing content for them. You know, so we're seeing like more women enter the space in the world of sports and having a voice and being very authentic in their voice and standing in their truth and owning it. And I think that's so important. And they've really opened the door, opened the floodgates for more women to come behind them. Can you, so I have, I have two more, sorry. I keep, I keep adding things. (laughs) One of them being Oscars. Um, You spoke about the Oscars bubble. I I just, even if briefly you can talk about your first time covering the Oscars, because for me, I'm a sports reporter Mm-hmm. And I cover the 49ers. And when I woke up on Super Bowl Sunday in 2020, I was like, oh my God, I'm covering the Super Bowl. That was a huge deal. Yeah. For me. So yeah. your first Oscars, what was that feeling like? Oh man, my first Oscars was, I think, 2009 maybe. And it was amazing. Um, it was one of those things where as soon as you step on the red carpet, you're looking around, taking it all in, much like when you step on the field mm-hmm. at the Super Bowl and just like, holy crap, I cannot believe that I actually got here, you know, and that I'm doing this. And, um, and it was, uh, it was a big year too. It was a, it was a year that, uh, Benjamin Buttons, Curious Case of Ben Buttons was up for many awards. And like mm-hmm. I said, hi to Brangelina, Brad was nominated, Angelina was nominated. Um, and I got like this lone kind of interview with Brad on the red carpet, which felt really special. And it was because, like I said earlier, you know, you go four and five nights a week to different events, you see, you know, the world's most famous man over and over again, you develop some type of rapport with them mm-hmm. where by the time the biggest night comes, you get that interview. It's akin to getting like that, you know, that Aaron Rodgers interview that everybody mm-hmm. probably wants right now, you know, and you right get now, it because 100%. you right now, 100%. <laughs> and, you know, you get it because everyone, you know, you, you put in the time, you put in that relationship building to, to make it where Aaron is like, you know who I have to talk to? I have to talk to Tracy. Like she's the person that I have to talk to, you know? Aaron, and I so, 
<laughs> you want to talk about it? I am here to listen. <laughs> and so that was just such a great, a great moment. And every year that I've been back ever since, um, that feeling has never gone away. Like it always feels just like the first time whenever I get back there. Kelly, I could talk to you all day, but I know that you do have other things to do, but I really, I feel like could talk to you all day long. Um, we of course have to do five fun facts because it is, well, maybe the most fun part. Uh, so without further ado, it is five fun facts with Kelly Carter. Okay, Kelly, what is your favorite moment in sports? Ooh, favorite moment in sports. I'm a Michigan State grad and my dad I went to and Michigan, I Michigan, but you're a nice person. Oh no. <laughs> well then you're then you're gonna hate this story because I didn't okay, okay. know that. <laughs> it was it was the two thousand and one football game. We had not beat Michigan in so long. My dad and I got tickets. Bobby Williams was the coach. My dad and Bobby were friends. And because that also is a big game for recruitment, um, they were they had overcommitted to the ticket. So we had to actually stand on the field, ended up being the best seat in the house. CJ Duckett ran it in. That's the Spartan Bob clock, you know, controversy. Uh I was on the field when I watched TJ Duckett run that TD in and we won that game and we rushed the field, almost died that day. I almost got caught up in a trample. It's one of the greatest days of my life. (laughs) Amazing. I can't, you know what? I I can't even be mad about it. (laughs) What is your life motto? Ooh, um, it's going to sound simple, but treat others like you want to be treated. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. so true for me. You know, like my great grandfather, um, one of his many jobs was he worked as a custodian at a newspaper. And it's just something that I carry with me. I've seen people be disrespectful to people who have whatever kind of job they have. And I always carry that with me like that mm-hmm. could be my great grandfather. And I would destroy someone if they were ever rude or disrespectful to that person. So I just truly think it's so important to treat people the way that you would want to be treated or the way you want them to treat your great grandfather. Absolutely. You know, and that's something that I walk with every day. I always say I judge people by how they treat the waiter, waitress, or busboy or bus exactly. person. So uh, I think that's yeah. very important. Do yeah. you have a go-to workout? Right now it's Peloton. <laughs> like everybody else. I'm in a very competitive group. We have a group chat Ooh. named Ride or Die and Ooh. we're in two teams. And um, my team is winning, not because of me, because I completely fell off last week, but I'm back in the game this week. So yes. <laughs> Amazing. Go to coffee order. Oh, it is a green tea matcha latte with soy milk. Okay. And last but not least, a book every woman should read. Ooh, um, one of my all-time favorite books is Coming of Age in Mississippi by Ann Moody. And um, while her experience is not hopefully what any of us are experiencing because we're not coming of age in the um, precursor to civil rights movement, it really is just about a young woman um, learning about herself and navigating through life with this tumultuous backdrop. But I think that it's just such a beautiful memoir and one of my all-time favorite books. Fantastic. Kelly, thank you so much for being here. If you guys like what you heard, and I know you did, please make sure to leave us a five-star review and follow us on Instagram at Fangirl Sports Network. Bye, y'all.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.